Last week, we completed chapter 4 of the Gospel of John. In those final 12 verses, we read an account of Jesus' second miracle of the seven expounded by John in the Gospel. It is a miracle of healing, specifically the healing of a nobleman's son. Having heard that Jesus had returned to Galilee from Judea, this nobleman traveled the 20 or so miles from Capernaum to Cana to seek out Jesus on behalf of his dying son. What he did not count on was that Jesus is no respecter of persons. This man's political power didn't intimidate or influence Jesus one little bit. So when the nobleman approaches Jesus with somewhat of an inflated ego, Jesus dismisses him with a harsh rebuke. But then the nobleman's desperation comes flooding to the surface and he addresses Jesus as Lord. And he begs him to heal his little boy. All pretense out of the way, Jesus, with four simple words, heals the man's son, even from that great distance, and sends the man home, where, as a result, he and his household become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The lessons we took home, hopefully, from the text, <clears throat> or at least I did, were that we must remember that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. As we grow in our knowledge of him, we must <clears throat> humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And we must love Jesus for who he is, <clears throat> not merely for what he can do for us. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> Today's text give us, gives us an account of Jesus' third miracle, which is obviously meant by John to be paired with the second miracle we read about last week, both of them being miracles of healing. But these two stories stand in sharp contrast to one another in many other ways, and I think you'll see what we mean as we go. I couldn't help, upon reflecting on these two miracles, uh, of another passage in the book of Revelation as I was considering these two healings. Revelation chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, read like this. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. Without too much commentary at this point, it seems to me that the story of the nobleman from last week is a good descriptor of sometimes how we see ourselves. And today's story is a descriptor of the reality of who we are, or at least who we were before Christ found us. So I've entitled today's message, Do You Want to Be Made Whole? I use the word whole instead of well. Some of your Bibles see well. I like the word whole better in this case. I think it's a, a little bit better translation of that word, and it fits uh, the goal that I'm going toward this morning. Do you want to be made whole? And I want that question to ring in your ears all week. 
With that in mind, let's read together John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. These are the words of the true and living God. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made whole? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. We thank you that it gives us wisdom. But this morning, we thank you especially that it gives us comfort. That the Jesus that healed this man so long ago is the same Jesus that created all things. The stars that we see at night, everything around us, every blade of grass. There's nothing that takes him by surprise and there's nothing that spirals out of his control. And so we place our hurting hearts for some of us into your capable hands this morning. We ask that you would open our eyes, that you would anoint our eyes with salve this morning that we might see. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage is full of twists and turns that kind of come at us out of nowhere. I think you'll see what I mean if you haven't already as we get going. But I decided to point out these twists and turns this morning because I think there are a few lessons we can draw from the fact that it does kind of meander around a little bit. So we are at the pool of Bethesda. There's some different um, guesses as to what that word means. We're not entirely sure. It looks like it probably means something like a house of mercy or house of grace, but it's not entirely sure exactly. But that's where we are this morning. Some time has passed in John's narrative between last week, chapter 4, and chapter 5. The beginning of chapter 5 tells us that Jesus has traveled back to Jerusalem, a two-day walk due south, to attend another Jewish festival. All Jewish men were required by Moses to go to the temple three times a year for the three pilgrimage festivals. There was first the Passover, then, 49 days later, there was a festival called Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, and we call it Pentecost. And then a third festival, six months later, half a year, Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. The text doesn't mention which of these festivals it is, although most Bible scholars seem to think that it is the next Passover, which, me which could mean that nearly a full year has passed since the end of chapter 4. 
it doesn't make any difference to the narrative, but I thought I would just mention it in passing to give us a sense of where this story fits into our time frame. So let's look at the location here. Uh, the author, John, makes a point of telling us exactly where this story takes place. It is near the Sheep Gate at a pool called Bethesda. We've known where the ancient Sheep Gate is. Uh, we've known that for centuries. We probably have never lost that knowledge, really. But the location of the Pool of Bethesda mentioned by John has been a bit of a mystery until an archaeological excavation in the past several decades or so confirmed that there was a bathing pool located just outside the Sheep Gate and it had five porticos. For clarification, in Jesus' day, the pool was just outside the city walls of Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate. Less than a century later, after the Romans had razed the city to the ground in 70 AD, and there was some rebuilding projects taking place, those rebuilt walls would actually place this pool inside the city where you will find it today if you go visit. The reason I mention the location, though, is because it seems to be an important spot in the history of the nation of Israel. The reason the Sheep Gate got its name because, is because it was located near the temple on the north, and all the sheep that were to be slaughtered as sacrifices would be led into the city through that gate. And I think uh, there should be a map that comes up next. There's Jerusalem. You see in the yellow there, that's the temple compound. And right close to it, uh, on the north, on the top side, there is the sheep gate. And if you'll look, there's a, a square just a little bit north of where the temple is. It's got those two little rectangles in it. That's where they believe the pool of Bethesda is. So that's where we're located today in our story. I wonder if, when Jesus went through that same gate, whether he thought about the fact that he was the fulfillment of the millions of sacrificial lambs that had been brought through that gate over the centuries. He was, after all, the Lamb of God. The final reason I mention the location may not seem important, but I believe it is vital for Christians to think about and understand John writes in verse 2 that there is, by the sheep gate, a pool. This is a strong indicator that John wrote his gospel before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, decades before liberal secular scholars date the book. Conservative Christian scholars need to push back on the pressure coming from secular academia to date these writings later and later, in order to discredit their reliability. I think that this is actually, I think that this gospel was actually written before the destruction of Jerusalem. But enough of that, let's move on. The setting. In verse 3, John tells us that this pool had five porticos or porches, covered areas where a person could gather. This is our first little twist. For centuries, Critics insisted that the text was in error because there was no evidence anywhere of any Jewish pool that had five porticos. The Jews always built, like the Romans, in rectangles and in squares. 
never odd shapes, like five-sided shapes, for example. Some said at that time, 100, 150 years ago, that whoever wrote this gospel was obviously mistaken, had never been to Jerusalem, knew nothing of Jewish architecture, or they were incorporating some Greek structure into the text. At that time, those who held to biblical inerrancy were openly ridiculed for holding to the text which skeptics knew to be in error. But there were those, not knowing how the situation would resolve, they continued to trust in the inerrancy of the Bible. Then, beginning in about 1964, excavations took place at a place where an ancient Byzantine church once stood, built in the 5th century, near the Sheep Gate. They found evidence of an unusual pool. Through the decades, archaeologists put together the history of the pool, and I think we should have the next slide comes up. That's what it looks like today. I don't know if you can make heads or tails of it, but that is the area where the pool of Bethesda is. Then the next slide... That, I know you guys are impressed. I drew that all by myself. Uh, took me about an hour. That's what the pool of Bethesda would have looked like from the top. You see the stairs coming down into it. But um, archaeologists have put together a history of the pool of Bethesda. It began simply as a, a handmade dam across an ancient brook, which caused a pool that people could go down to. Then at some point, um, people uh, built uh, walls and uh, stairs so that people could go down into the water there. And then finally, at some point, a second pool was attached to it. So, so the original pool had three porticos. You saw those flash by there. there. There it is. Then they took down the third portico. And they built another pool right beside it with a sluice gate between them so they could control the water level. And then they built some more porticos. And you know the amazing thing? The modifications produced a pool that had five porticos, nice and simple. One, two, three, four, five. And those that held to biblical inerrancy once again were correct, even though they never saw the fact that their faithfulness to the text was correct in spite of everybody criticizing. Folks, that, that's my encouragement to you. The Bible is the inerrant word of God. People have attacked it for thousands and thousands of years, and all of them have crumbled. We stick to the scriptures. We stick to the scriptures. Anyway, surrounding the pool in today's text lay a great multitude of invalids. It seems as though a large number of the people of Judea that were blind or lame or paralyzed or afflicted in some way that prevented them from providing for themselves or even contributing to society in general were gathered at this place. It is, to say the least, a tragic sight. Furthermore, these people are desperate. It seems as though there was a common superstition surrounding this pool that promised healing to the first person to enter the water after an angel stirred it. 
before we consider that idea, just picture, if you will, what it would have been like to be around this pool. When you and I picture a pool with porticos, we also might instantly think of palm trees and people serving drinks with little umbrellas in them. But nothing could be further from the truth of this setting. The people around this pool were considered to be the dregs of society. This would have been a place that polite society would have avoided at all cost. Consider for a moment, each one of these people needed to eat. They needed to drink. They needed to use facilities which were not available and they couldn't get to. And none of that would be possible unless every one of them has someone there to constantly help them. John is giving us a picture that would make a lot of us very uncomfortable. We would avoid this place if we could. If we couldn't, we would look away. We would certainly try not to make eye contact. We would try to forget what we saw. This is not a pretty picture. But this is precisely where Jesus went. In Jesus' eyes, these people were not dregs. They were human beings created in the image of God. Here's a second little twist. Verse 4 strikes us as a bit strange, doesn't it? An angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, as Christians, we don't shy away from the possibility of the miraculous. The Bible records many times when God moves in history, overriding the normal occurrence of events with some miracle which does not fit the expected pattern of everyday life. We're okay with that. God is God, and he can do that if he chooses to. But this particular miracle has perplexed Christians from as early as Tertullian in the second century. And the reason for that, I think, is that it does not fit the biblical pattern for how God performs and uses miracles to further his redemptive plan and to further his redemptive message. To us, or to me at least, this miracle seems vague and capricious. It there is nothing about this miracle that points us to the God of Israel as the healer. There is no lesson, no principle we can draw from it. In fact, if anything, the message it seems to give is contrary to the character of God. The person who, through sheer effort or sheer luck of timing, who gets into the water first, wins. Everybody else is too weak or too friendless, or too helpless to deserve to be healed. There are a couple explanations of this. One, John is recording for us the common superstition held by the people at that time, helping us to understand why the people were there in the first place, even if there was no validation for these miracles. Or two, and this is more likely, a copyist, inserted at the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4, helping the reader to understand what John was writing here. 
about why this man had not yet been healed. And so we have in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John, they don't actually include the end of verse 3 and verse 4. So that's a viable possibility. Um, I'm happy with either explanation. None of it changes the story for me or the truth uh, of what we are going to read in, in this story. So let's move into the meat of the text. Jesus questions a lame man. The Bible calls him a certain man. There were many people in desperate need gathered around the pool of Bethesda. The Bible calls it a great multitude. Certainly dozens, maybe even hundreds. Those that were able were probably gazing intently at the water, waiting for any sign that healing might be at hand. It must have broken Jesus' heart to see what sin had done over the centuries to mankind. And here I have to make something abundantly clear. Just because a person is suffering from a disease doesn't mean that it's a result of their own personal sin. In fact, Jesus explicitly teaches the opposite of this in Luke chapter 13, the first five verses. The only one who can possibly know why some people suffer more than other people is God. That's it. Our duty as Christians is to relieve the suffering of others as much as we are able, never mind why they're suffering. It is commanded by Christ himself. I suppose the question naturally arises, it did for me, why didn't Jesus heal all the people? Why didn't Jesus heal all the people? He could have. We know who Jesus is. He could have. Instead, Jesus singles out one person, a certain man. A man who had an infirmity for 38 years. For 38 years, this man had been unable to take care of himself and was totally reliant on others. The number of years this man had been in this condition is significant. In the book of Exodus, we read that the children of Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. And that's true, they did. But those first two years, we read, are spent at Mount Sinai, receiving the law and all the blessings and cursings that go with it. Then, once the children of Israel are on the border of the promised land, Moses sends 12 spies into the land to learn about it and to bring back a report. The only two that encouraged the people to move in and take over the land were Caleb, who was of the tribe of Judah, by the way, and Joshua, who was of the tribe of Ephraim, by the way, and that's important, not to our text today, but it's important. The other 10 said there was no way they could take the land from the huge and fierce inhabitants. And the people listened to the 10 negative reports. And as a result of their refusal to take the land, the people of Israel were forced by God to wander in the desert for the next 38 years until all that generation died out. 
This developed in Jewish thinking, for better or for worse, into considering 38 years to be the length of time a person would have to suffer for direct disobedience to God. And this will become important later in the text, not this week, but next week, Lord willing. So file it in your brains under I, important. Let's look at the question Jesus asks. One commentator describes this infirm man as Jesus approaches him as hard to like, easy to blame, convenient to ignore. But Jesus approaches him anyway, and he asks him, do you want to be made whole? I have to be honest with you. When I began considering this question that Jesus asked, I was perplexed, to say the very least. The answer seems so obvious that the question might appear like a waste of time to ask. But then I really began to consider this question in the light of human nature. And I began to consider this question in the light of the salvation offered through Christ. I think when we stop and think about it for a while, as I have had opportunity to this past week, I think we begin to at least scratch the surface of the incredible depth of Jesus' question here. Underlying this question are a series of other hidden questions. Questions like this. Do you want to have every excuse in your life for inactivity eliminated? Do you want to wake up tomorrow a very different kind of person with a whole new level of responsibilities? I know this sounds harsh. I don't mean for it to be uncaring or calloused. I don't. But at the same time, I need to speak the truth because the underlying principle here is so vital and so powerful. There are people out there who are sick, but they do not truly want to be made whole. I don't think there are many of them, but I think they're out there. In some strange way, they enjoy the attention they get because they are sick. Their illness is an excuse to avoid the trappings of difficult responsibilities. Maybe there are other reasons, I don't know. I trust that this doesn't apply to anyone in here. But when we dig down into the spiritual level for this question, we find that there are many who don't want to be made whole. Let's consider that a little bit. Folks, Jesus gives this man a yes or no question. Do you want to be made whole? You would think this man would emphatically declare his desire to be free from the clutches of his illness, wouldn't you? What if Jesus asked you that in that situation? Think of another time when Jesus asked a blind man, what would you like me to do for you? No hesitation. Restore my sight. But here, when Jesus asks this man if he wants to be made whole, yes or no? He gives Jesus neither answer. He doesn't give him a yes and he doesn't give him a no. Instead, he answers with, yeah, but I know a fellow. 
It's not any of you. In fact, he doesn't live in this town. And if I even gave the smallest hint of who I was talking about, many of you would know immediately who I was talking about. So I'm giving no small hint. But he's so disagreeable, we actually call him Yabat. It's a little play on the old uh, TV show, Yabat, Abbott and Costello. We, oh, we talk about Yabat and Costello. Anyway, a person doesn't dare talk with him about anything more controversial than the weather. And even that can be a risk. Who sure is raining hard outside today. Yeah, but this is nothing compared to the rain we had in 76. <laughs> Maybe we all know somebody like this. <clears throat> anyway, that's how this man here answers Jesus. Do you want to be made whole? Yeah, but... I don't have any friends, and when the water is stirred, I can't get there. And when I do get there, someone goes in down before me, and ah, oh, it's just this and that, and I, I just don't know what to do. I don't know if you've noticed this before, but read it again. The man never answers Jesus' question. Simple question. His response is kind of squirrely. C.H. Dodd, New Testament scholar, he, uh, he, he calls this response a feeble excuse, lacking desire. Folks, I hate to break it to you, but some people simply do not want to be made whole. I'm not talking about physically now, although that may be true at times as well. Many, when offered the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, turn into yabbats. Yeah, but I don't want to give up my sin. Yeah, but I don't want to read the Bible or pray or go to church. Yeah, but I don't want to take up my cross daily. You would think that if you lay down before a person sin or righteousness, freedom or bondage, light or darkness, life or death, that people would make the obvious choice. <clears throat> Look at the words of Moses to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 30, 15 to 20. <clears throat> See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, 
for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Sadly, almost all of these people looked at that choice and said, hmm, I pick death, evil, and cursing. Not long ago, we read these words in John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Now, if this principle were only true of unbelievers, most of us that are Christians could sit in here and in self-congratulations nod our heads in agreement. Yeah, those people. But the fact of the matter is, not every Christian wants to be made whole either. Do you want to have more impact bringing the truth of Christ to the world? Yeah, but... I don't want to give up any of my free time. Do you want the church to grow? Yeah, but I really like the mix of people we have right now. Do you want to live a life more committed to the teaching of Christ? Yeah, but I have some habits I'd rather not sacrifice. Let's not kid ourselves, folks. Jesus asks us a question whose answer should be obvious. But we are not willing to give up any comfort to enter into a life of greater responsibility and greater blessings. We're yabbats. And to some degree, I think that's what's happening with this man in today's text. We have to read the rest of the story to see it, but I'll let you do that this week and we'll talk about it next week. So we'll get a clear indication of this as the story continues, that this man is not actually all that interested in being made whole. Jesus heals him anyway, physically. Jesus told the man to do what up to this point is impossible for him. I don't know what this man experienced when Jesus told him to rise. Perhaps an unmistakable strength filled his body that was absent just a moment before. Perhaps he tried to rise and realized right at that moment that he was able. But one thing is noticeably absent here in this healing. Jesus says nothing about this man's faith making him well. Jesus initiated and completed this man's healing in order, it seems, to put him on the path to faith. It really is unique among the recorded healings of Christ. And yet, as we will learn later in the story, even though Jesus healed this man's body, further ministry was needed in this man's soul. I think the lesson for the Christian might be something like this. We need Jesus to minister to us constantly. Later on in this same gospel, chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, 
you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. We have some apple trees on our yard, and they have beautiful blooms in the spring or early summer. If I were to go grab one of those blooms and place it on our table inside, waiting for the apple to form, I would be sorely disappointed. That bloom has to abide in the tree. The fruitfulness of the Christian. The degree to which the believer will radiate love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and whatever other godly virtue there may be, depends on whether we are abiding in Christ and he in us. This is the continuing ministry of Jesus Christ in our lives. He doesn't just heal us once at our regeneration, set us on the path, give us a shove and wish us good luck. He saved us that we might abide in him. Our hands and our feet healed of their sinful proclivities to become his hands and his feet full of strength, bringing healing to others. Jesus commands him, take up your bed and walk. To reinforce this idea, Jesus does not only heal the man, he gives him something to do. In fact, he commands him to do something. Seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? But how many people, upon being healed in their souls by Jesus Christ, say, ah, how wonderful it is to be healed. I do believe I will continue to lie here beside the pool, wallowing in my own filth until someone comes along to take me out of here. If that healed man continued to lie there, useless, how many people would listen to him when he proclaimed his wonderful healing? I think precisely zero. Has Jesus healed you? Has he saved you from sin and death? Well then, do something. I know I'm probably preaching to the choir here. I'm sure all of you are better at this than I am. Let's just quickly read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It was brought up in Sunday school this morning. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? Didn't quite hear you. Do you believe that or are you just saying that? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What about Titus 3.14? And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. How do we do this? 
one of the things we learned this week. Emergencies don't crop up when it's convenient for us. The difference between the faithful and the unfaithful is whether we say yes or no when it's convenient or inconvenient. How do we do this? How do we walk in the good works that God has prepared for us? How do we maintain good works, which we're commanded to do? We abide in Christ. And when he commands us to take up our bed and walk, we obey. And then he will continue to minister strength to us. Jesus couldn't have given this command at a more inconvenient time for this man. For him to take up his bed and walk through Jerusalem was the death penalty. Because it was the Sabbath. This was done on the Sabbath day. There's no question about it. Jesus is intentionally picking a fight with the Jewish religious authorities. This is the beginning of a long fight. The rest of the story will cover the controversy that follows. And we will look at that next week and possibly the week after, Lord willing. Dale Bruner, in his New Testament commentary, says this. Jesus ordered the man to carry his bed precisely to precipitate the controversy. And in that, not only to correct the misguided Sabbath theology, but more than that, to establish his own authority as the Lord of the Sabbath. He was openly declaring who he was. Three practical lessons for today. Perhaps they're questions. I had to add that a little bit later because I realized that my practical lessons were just questions and questions don't tell us anything, but we'll try and learn from them anyway. Number one, are we tolerating in our lives any infirmity that excuses us from serving Christ as fully as we should? When God presents us with an opportunity to serve him, do we look at our infirmities and start making excuses? Maybe it's more benign than the man in today's story, but the principle holds. Number two, are we guilty of looking at our infirmity and seeing it as greater than the power of Christ? Even the Apostle Paul, at one point in his life, he cried out to the Lord, distressed about a thorn he had in the flesh. We have no idea what it was. Probably he was thinking how much more effective he could be if that thorn would just be removed. And what was Jesus' answer? My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Number three, here's the whole point of today's message. Do you want to be made whole? Seems like an obvious question. Everybody, yeah, of course. I'll ask it again. Do you actually want to be made whole? The answer seems obvious. Of course we want to be made whole. Don't be stupid, Pastor Kevin. 
Of course we want that blessing from the Lord. Of course we would like to be freed to take up the responsibilities that lay ahead. But let's face it. It can be comfortable to be not quite whole. It gives us excuses for inaction we might not otherwise have if we are not quite whole. Let's be open and honest with the Lord about those things that are holding us back from vibrant Christian service, always abiding in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is good. We've looked at nine simple verses and we can see how transformative these verses are in the power of your hand. And so we ask this morning that we would not leave here unchanged, that we would reflect on any infirmities that we've been clinging to as excuses for inaction, that any comforts we've been clinging to as excuses of inaction. Your word tells us very plainly that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works and that you have beforehand placed these in our way that we should walk in them. And so some of us all of a sudden can't walk. Lord, I pray that you would make us whole on the inside, that we would not have souls that are infirm, regardless of the condition of our bodies. Lord, I ask that as we go into this week, that you would point out these infirmities to us, that you would give us the courage to bring them to the cross, and that you would give us the strength to, to be obedient to the command of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.